Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, and I'm joined in the studio today by Harriet Russell. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks, John. Excellent. Which is not something that can be said more generally in your <laughs> sectors and about the weather. Yeah, it's it's been a tough week. There's been a shed load of results, and the weather is uh, is getting everyone down. Indeed, and there's been a shed load of uh, administrations as well in the retail sector, which we are going to talk about, which is very timely, uh, given the feature that you've written this week. This week is, in fact, ISA special, so that will be covered in a lot more detail on the PF podcast, which is going to be recorded tomorrow. But Harriet, you've written the cover feature this week, and it's about uh, retail property, and, and of course, by extension, the prospects of retailers themselves. Some good data here. Yeah, it, it took a while to put together. It's it's literally one chart, so I don't want to oversell it, but it's a chart that tells you an awful lot just in, in one graphic. And it was really about digging into these retailers' annual reports to find out exactly what leases they have currently sort of sitting on the balance sheet because the upcoming change that is known as IFRS 16, which will only come into effect next year, but the retailers are already scrambling to work out what that really means for their businesses going forward. Okay, and it's not necessarily good for everybody, but we'll come back to that. Um, We're going to talk to Simon Thompson uh, shortly about his latest uh, small cap uh, selections this week. But let's let's, let's start with a couple of results. It's gone mad. (laughs) Always does this time of year. Yeah, you just forget. It creeps up on you and and all of a sudden it's here and and it's like a blizzard. (laughs) It's the beast, Figuratively, the beast from the east has, has, has hit. Yes, I think actually uh, and metaphorically in respect of results. Indeed, companies editor Mark Robinson this morning described us as snowed under, which uh, which was both a literal and figurative use of that phrase. So uh, yeah, it's been really busy. There's uh, there's been a broad range out this week. And, and, yeah, my general view of, of of the results season is that actually a lot of results are quite decent. Mm-hmm. That there have been some some notable issues on a sector-specific basis, and some of those are now manifest, manifesting themselves in terms of uh, administrations in a particular sector. Retail is looking pretty bad. Yeah. It's looking pretty bad. You've covered a retailer this week in the results section, which I think is Greg's. It is. And how have they done? How are they How are they uh, battling through the, uh, the, the ill winds of a, a difficult retail economy? It's interesting, actually, because Greg's is doing well. I was a bit suspicious about a year ago that how long this good run could last. It's seemingly carrying on, but I think there's a crucial reason why, which is that they're actually pouring the bulk of their money into back-end investments, so distribution, manufacturing, logistics, rather than sort of splurging on new openings. There are still a good pace of new openings, and I think they are still due to open a record number of shops this year, but the bulk of their focus, let's say, is making their business more streamlined and more efficient and it's paying off at the bottom line. I mean, you've got to think, though, that they've done something in terms of their offer that keeps people coming through the door. I mean, what we're seeing elsewhere in the sector is that a lot of retailers are struggling to stay relevant. What has Greg's done differently? It's done loads and that's another key point. They've really sort of transform themselves um, and Roger Whiteside the chief executive there was talking a lot about this on the results call to move away from their traditional reputation as a baker and sausage roll maker and they've really focused a lot on healthy ranges and even sort of specialist diet stuff as well like gluten-free soups to keep those people coming back and uh, there was a while a couple of years ago where they really honed in on breakfast making coffee a really big thing for them as well that's typically very high margin so yeah they've really focused on broadening their range making it relevant to a more health conscious consumer okay we've only got them on a hold though what are our concerns 
Well, they're very expensive. That's the thing. It's sort of one of those um, unfortunate situations where a lot of the growth, in my perspective, is in the price. And it really doesn't leave a lot of room for error. And let's face it, the retail sector at the moment is pretty vulnerable overall and sub, you know, subsequently makes it very sort of exposed to any sort of shock. And if you've got a share on that kind of rating, if they slightly miss the analyst expectations, then, then they've got a long way to fall. 18 times forward earnings. It's not, it's not extraordinarily expensive. Not against the broad sector, but against food retailers, it's the most expensive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then it's a more focused model. So, uh... Admittedly so. There's always an argument to build around sort of paying out for quality, paying out for someone that's getting it right. Ted Baker's a good example of that in clothing. But at the moment, there, there are just too many unknowns in that sector, especially as Amazon continues to sort of broaden its food range as can't, well. I can't imagine Amazon moving into sausage rolls. but uh, <laughs> You never know. You never That's know with Amazon. You never know. I mean, the share price chart there, it looks like there's been a bit of uh, negative sentiment towards this company recently. Yeah, and also just like a bit of a sell-off. Like, you know, the, these things gather momentum when people see things going in the right way. And perhaps some of the investors are thinking they've had a good run and now the price looks a bit full. So Yeah, indeed. Uh, you've also written right next to it, in fact, on the on the spread is Inchcape mm. UK motor retail this is something we are slightly concerned about Inchcape is obviously a global motor retailer so it should be insulated it largely from this but we've downgraded the shares from from a previously bullish stance. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. A lot of my buy tip that I wrote up last year was premeditated on the idea that Inchcape is a global business. It's across something ridiculous, like 50-odd markets. And it's not only a motor retailer, it's also a motor distributor. So they have multiple channels as well, which, which makes it a bit more of a defensive business in this sort of climate. Um However, they said this week that um, the year ahead is going to be extremely challenging, not only because the UK market continues to be weak, but they're starting to see pockets of weakness elsewhere as well. Mm. Places like Australia, Singapore, which are big markets for cars. So, yeah, we were just, uh, we and the market, I should say, were a little sort of shaken by that. I mean, you've you've written a piece in the past on what we call the credit cycle. Uh, and obviously, motor retailers are, are one of those sectors that's very dependent upon where we are in the credit cycle. Is is this what's happening here? Are, are we getting to that point where all the borrowing's been done, people just don't want to borrow anymore? It's an interesting question, because if you're comparing it to the situation that's happening in the US, where a lot of these motor financing deals are actually coming under scrutiny from regulators... Well, they are here as well. The, P- the PCPs, I think they call PCPs, them. PCPs, yeah, personal contract plans. Um, it's actually not to the same degree. Um, there's a lot of subprime lending that goes on in the US. And if you ask uh, motor retailers here, I had a meeting with Vertu last week as well, um, they will tell you that it's not the same level of scrutiny, and they're not too worried about leasing plans. But what is happening with sort of movements around diesel and things like that is that people are not refinancing. Um, So they're very often actually just choosing to give the cars back. And what that means is you've got a huge imbalance between supply and demand in motor, which is exactly what Inchcape cited as well. I mean, the idea of the... I I actually... uh, I know a guy who works in in the motor motor industry, one of the big manufacturers, and PCPs, he described as sort of the crack cocaine of the car retail market, because once you're on them... You can't get off unless you give the car back and decide that's it. But, you know, the whole idea of PCP, you buy for, you borrow, you buy for three years, you, you, you get a new one. That, that perhaps isn't stacking up. It's not that kind of uh, that hook that the industry was looking for necessarily. No, it's interesting. My meeting with Vertu, they were very, very staunch about this. And they said millennials, younger generations are still really into cars. They still really want to be able to afford them. And therefore, in their perspective... PCPs will continue to have sort of a shine on them and an allure. Um, However, 
the sort of wider data just doesn't really support that no. argument at all. Um, and it's suggesting that actually a lot of people are sacrificing their cars. Even people who rely on them for work are actually now going to their company and saying, if you want me to be able to drive to, say, audits or other sorts of professional services, then you're going to have to supply me with the car. But it is the, fl- I mean, that, that's an interesting uh, observation because the fleet market is a big market in the UK. It is. And it's doing well compared to traditional motor retail. If you look at, if you break other people, people's results down very often fleet is doing really really well so someone like bca marketplace i mean they, they seem to be holding holding up quite well when the when the motor retailers direct to consumer uh, in terms of you know through a showroom are looking a bit bit iffy exactly and a lot of it comes down to the fact that and this is perhaps something we'll get onto with discussion of the future is that to draw people out of their homes to go and look at products that you can buy is becoming harder and harder and harder and retailers in a sort of traditional sense with cars are even finding it difficult to drag people down to a forecourt to start perusing vehicles which you know back in the day would have been quite a nice saturday afternoon activity um for lots of guys so it's um yeah it's definitely reflective of sort of a changing um, behaviour amongst consumers as well. Yeah, I mean, and you've also got, I mean, within the car market, you've got changing models of ownership, ride sharing, all this kind of stuff. One suspects this sector has some challenges that are going to, they're going to just increase in the next few years. Absolutely. I mean, the environmental concerns, which a lot of shared ownership schemes are sort of born out of, that's obviously very true of what's going on in diesel as well. And I suspect that there is going to be more and more stuff where people, um, particularly millennials who are, let's, let's face it, already overloaded with student debt or trying to get on the property ladder or things like that, they are going to look at cutting these seemingly discretionary purchases or finding some other more cost-effective way to, to own them. So I just don't think the profits are going to be what they're used to in motor retail. No, I mean, it was already a, always a fine margin business, but uh, yeah, life is not going to get easier there. And actually, it seems, I mean, looking at some of the results we've had from, say, the House Builders Persimmon, some great results this week, upping the returns to shareholders, that that, that money is being prioritised for housing, the big mm. purchase. So yeah, it's... Uh, Tough times for retail, motor retail, general retail. Um, we've got results in the, the magazine this week, uh, this week for Hammerson and Into, who are big UK retail landlords. And they're quite interesting. I'll, I'll leave you to read those yourselves. But they tie in very nicely with, with the feature we've written this week. And you and Jones have written this together. Joint effort. Yeah, I've sort of taken it from an accounting point of view and a sort of general retail point of view. He's looked at it, obviously, from the landlord's point of view and given his sort of true property expertise um, in a box out on the third page. So, uh, yeah. Okay, I mean, it's interesting. We did a big piece on property. We called it the property forecast a few weeks ago, which is quite timely given the the horrible weather we're having. Um, This was one sector of property that's looking iffy. And Hammerson and Into are, are, are kind of trying to get over the challenges by, by merging. It's a huge merger. Um, but what are these challenges? What is happening on the high street that's making life so much more difficult for these big retail landlords? It's really just a tale of over-leverage, which you know, long-term investors will not be unfamiliar with. It happened to pubs during the last recession. And although we're not in a recession at the moment, um, I think that a lot of the conditions are quite similar on the consumer front in terms of 
tight budgets and sort of poor consumer confidence. Yeah, so we get we get figures from people like IHS Market who do a household uh, finance confidence index. That's been looking a bit weak for a while. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would sit here and say, well, the housing market's not as bad as people think or um, actual retail volumes are holding up. So surely the picture can't be all that bad. But it's actually these sort of harder indicators which are a lot less sort of quantitative in their measurability that um, are similar to a recessionary sort of environment which is that people just don't have as much disposable income as these retailers would like them to have to be able to spend on discretionary items. So we need to see really wage increases to, to offset that and they are coming through but but only very slowly. They are coming through and the data from the US the other week, which was a lot more positive than people had expected, did actually have a knock-on effect on some of the stocks on the LSE. A lot of the retailers went up that day. So there is definitely a correlation between people's incomes and what that could mean for British retail this year. So so before we move on to the specific thing you've looked at here, which is the lease liability, which is going to all become much clearer when IFRS 16... Not 15, because we've been talking about that one as well recently. There's lots of new standards, actually. So, yes, it's hard to keep them all straight. This one is 16, and this this deals specifically with lease liabilities. Uh, And actually, I think it's a good thing, because retailers did not necessarily have to disclose how much lease liability they had before, and it's a big part of their business. Um, But let's talk, talk before we we go into that, that specific point, about retail generally and why we've suddenly started to see a number of very large, well-known retailers going into administration. Yeah, I mean, the latest casualty this morning is uh, is carpet right. That's down 30%. And although they haven't declared themselves bankrupt just yet, um, they have said that they've seen further market deterioration since their last trading update, which was only the end of January. Yeah, so I they, remember them warning very recently. Yeah, so, you know, that was bad enough. And less than a couple of months later, they're already saying it's even worse to the extent that their year-end is actually a funny one. It's the 28th of April. Uh, they're going to end up reporting a loss for the year. OK, that's not good. That's not good. So Carpet Riot, I mean, is it going to go? I think it might. Yeah. I think it might. Um, I hate to say that because I do actually have quite a lot of time for the management there. I think that they had identified what was wrong with that business and what they needed to do to fix it, which was basically just give it one big giant facelift and make the product offering a lot more sort of relevant to millennial tastes, which is, you know, make it a bit more bougie, really, for want of a better phrase. But they just didn't have the money to do it. But is it millennials buying carpet? Well... I mean, I, I mean if they mismatch their, their strategy with, with actually... The, I mean, there are first-time buyers out there who are buying carpet, but surely the big spenders on carpet are the baby boobers. They are, but when I refer to millennial taste, I don't necessarily refer to the millennial generation. Right, you just, you just mean grey carpets, then? And Yeah, I just mean... <laughs> I, what I ultimately mean is trends, right? Yeah, like yeah, fashion, yeah. what's fashionable, what's in, what's in good taste. And a lot of what Carpet Right does... I think, is still sort of lodged in the 1970s. I'm sure there are a lot of PRs that would hate me for saying We're going to get some calls now. Yeah, Um, But but in the 70s, people were buying carpet. And and sellers were getting very rich off it. uh, Yeah, and, you know, to even push it further back, this is something that perhaps our good friend Harry Wallet might say, but even post-war, right, some of these things were just seen as basics. My grandparents would just be happy to have carpet, to have new carpet. They wouldn't care what sort of, you know, shag pile it was or whatever. Whereas now, that's almost like bottom of the barrel type stuff. And they really are looking for something that's going to, you know, set them apart when they put their photo on Instagram. And mm. a lot of retailers just aren't keeping pace with that sort of shift in, in consumer taste. So, so essentially, Carpet Right has the right idea, but 
it's, it may be running out of time. I, I think, think yeah, exactly. It's running out of time. It's running out of money. It just wasn't generating the sort of cash or profits that could then be reinvested into that sort of refurbishment program. They so, did have a refurbishment program, but it was it was slow. Possibly a company specific problem there in terms of uh, earlier underinvestment. Early underinvestment, um, you look at someone like Topps Tiles, it's a similar set of circumstances. Um, same market, home improvement. Indeed. You expect them to be suffering the same issues. But they're not. And they're off to a really... They had, didn't have the greatest 2017. They had a really tough first half. But this year, admittedly, they're up against a weak comparative. But so far, they're off to a flying start. And actually, I look at the Topps Tiles um, branches around me, and they have gone through a massive facelift. And a f- couple of friends of mine the other week just said they got all of their bathroom tiles and their kitchen tiles from Topps Tiles. We we talked briefly about this earlier. Tops actively courted the trade segment. And if you look at someone like B&Q, they have put a lot of emphasis on their screw fix business. Is that trade thing an important differentiator in in this retail industry? It can be. It's not the only thing, but I think it helps. If you're going to get a builder in to do these home improvements and he's you know can make suggestions around what sort of retailers you might want to go to because he can get it at a good price which, which they do which, which they absolutely do. do howden howden's being a great example of that yeah still absolutely doing well. um then then yeah i think it works really well um you know to look at b&q though i think sensible people um realize that that business which is obviously owned by kingfisher is, is the parent company will realize that that really is still a business of two halves and one company that springs to mind in that respect was Home Retail Group. Ultimately, that business ended up being sort of split apart for its, uh, its some of its parts valuation. Well, it's quite interesting, actually, isn't it? Because Home Retail consisted of Argos, which went to Sainsbury's, and Homebase, which went to another buyer whose West name... West Farmers. I, well done. <laughs> I've forgotten that. Aren't they now talking about writing down that investment? Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary, really. Yeah. And it, but it was always it was always the same. Whenever we covered home retail group results, you know, it was really a game of two halves, and you could split them into this does well and this does badly. It's a bit like W H Smiths now. If you look at High Street, it's always a bit rubbish. If you look at Travel, it's always amazing. Um, and it's to what extent those businesses will sort of you know learn to rely on their strengths and just cut the wheat from the chaff. Mm, it's going to be a tough week for uh, WH Smith travel, given the uh, chaos on the trains. Which well, if people morning, are stranded, so. they might take a wander around WH Smith to entertain themselves. So. It's not that insane. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you for five minutes. Pick up a magazine, pick up a book. So you won't be able to pick up the IC this week, because it's polybagged. No. In it. They, actually uh, have to pay for it. They actually have to pay for it. Um, let's talk about the, the specific um, reason that you wrote this feature, and this is about lease liability. And, and actually, Carpet Right is a really good example, as mm. uh, uh, Serendipity has, has revealed, of a company that has essentially a very unfavourable mix of stores in terms of the lease profile. Explain how this works and, 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 and why we should be worried about it for certain companies. OK, well, it's something that goes very underreported um, in basic results because in their results, some do, but the majority do not disclose anything over their individual property lease liabilities. And by that, we're talking about operating leases rather than finance leases. Because a lot of property companies, oh, sorry, a lot of retail companies no longer own their own stores. Indeed, a lot of them... Um, in fact, most of them. ...operate through leasehold schemes. There are a couple of things which I'll get onto in a second which show that that might be changing. Um, but yeah, freeholds are extremely, extremely rare, um, particularly once you get outside the remit of sort of head office buildings and things like that. It's funny enough because a company like Marks and Spencer's was, was often well, well thought of because it, it did in fact own a lot of its property and over the years has essentially sold it off on sale and leaseback terms. Tesco would have done the same. Yeah, I mean, the one sort of thing I'd say about sale and leaseback is that depending on the sort of business you're running, it, it can be massively dangerous. I mean, if you look at things like the care home sort of 
um, crash in the early 2000s. I think, you know, the sale and leaseback model was really the undoing of, uh, of people like Southern Cross. But it's attractive when things are going well. Absolutely. It, and it's a good bit of financial engineering that can make things look better than they perhaps are. Yeah, and freeholds make good investments, and when you want to release the cash, then then you can. But it's also similar to what happened in pubs, in my experience, which is that you end up selling off your best assets because actually no one's interested in the crummy ones. So you end up selling off what is actually the most valuable thing about your portfolio. Yeah, indeed. So let's talk about Marks and Spencers, because it is one of the key examples you talk about here, and, and it's on your amazing chart. Uh, it's There's black. There's black. <laughs> And black's not good on this chart. Black's not good on this chart, but what I would say about Marks and Spencer is that it actually falls somewhere in the middle. The worst offender is Debenhams, and the black bar refers to leases. I've actually on this chart labelled it as more than 15, but actually if you want to look at the original data that I have, you'll see that Debenhams and Marks and Spencers were actually the only two companies I profiled that ended up with leases in extent of 20, and in Debenhams' case, 25 years. What's the problem with this? Why should we worry that a retailer has long leases? The problem is that they're very hard to get out of. And if that store or that lease happens to be loss making and you want to close it, then you're going to have to pay pretty punishing exit fees to get out of that. It's something that Marks and Spencer has already had a little bit of experience with um, in the last year because this is what they did internationally. Steve Rowe really curbed the international programme. It just wasn't really working. It wasn't really translating anymore. And it was eating up a lot of money, not just in terms of the leases they were taking on, but also in terms of general investment. Um, So he cut his losses and he got out. But, you know, doing that, if you look at the size of the black bar of M&S relative to the percentage of the stores that it's that it owns, you know, that's getting on for a quarter. So, but, so what it means is they're inflexible. They can't they can't tweak the, the property portfolio, the store base uh, as they need to when when times get tough in particular areas. They're yeah, essentially stuck with it in the, unless they pay a hefty amount of money. Indeed. And it's it's funny because you read a lot of headlines daily in the broadsheets about M&S closing stores or cutting jobs or what have you. But it's actually only when you go into their annual report, not even their preliminary or annual results. It's only in the annual report that you find this sort of information and you realise that actually a quarter of the M&S estate is still locked into a lease that is more than 15 years. Okay, so that flexibility is quite important. So you'd imagine when, when, when faced with the massive threat from online retail... You need to be more nimble than ever these days. And, and the big lease liability is, is something that stops stops companies being like that. But, but this also reveals some good news in the sector, which is those companies that do manage their store base with short leases and, and can essentially move as quickly as they need to to, 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 uh, to absorb whatever the, the, the challenges are on the high street at a particular time. Yeah, it's it's ultimately about freeing up cash flow at the end of the day. You know, you, you have to set aside a certain amount of cash to be paying these rents, rents that are probably going to increase over time. Is, is that why you get retail uh, insolvencies, administrations all coming at the same sort of time? Is this related to the quarter, quarter rent day thing? Yeah, that's a really re- interesting point, actually, because uh, on this chart, someone like Card Factory, who doesn't come out that badly at all, in fact, they're one of the best, um, they will tell you that a lot of their rents are actually up for renewal within the next sort of year, 18 months. And that gives them greater visibility over the amount of cost that they can expect to save. So when they're giving you an annual cost savings target in the result, that can be a pretty sort of safe number, which someone like Debenhams or M&S, a bulk of their costs are tied up into the next 20, 25 years. So that's just something they're going to have to deal with. So so we kind of like, rather than the sort of retail behemoths that, uh, that, that investors once favoured, the Debenhams, the M&S, 
we kind of prefer the kind of smaller, more nimble players these days. Yeah, I would say the one thing about this data is that it's not a perfect set of data because what a lot what of... What data is, Harriet? What data, <laughs> what data is? is. But a lot of the more nimble ones that you're referring to, a lot of the market newcomers, Jules, Hotel Chocolat, which I talk about all the time, they actually only account in their annual reports for leases under one year, one to four years, and then five years plus. And there's no breakdown in that five year plus about quite how long the leases are. One would assume that if they were working with the standards that should be broad across the sector, that if those leases got beyond 10 years, they'd have to then break it down into a separate line. But they don't. So there's no real way of knowing unless you are the financial director of that company. But they will, and we will know exactly what they've got come January 2019? January 2019 is uh, is the time when it becomes an official standard and should be uh, recommended by the EU as well, although again, who knows what that will really mean for the UK. Um, but these are international standards, so they should apply for, for everyone. Um, but actually, a lot of the companies have said that they will start quantifying provisions this summer. And that's why we've written this feature now, which is, you know, so far in advance, realistically. But actually, we wanted readers to be aware that they could start hearing about these numbers. And, and, it, and it's a real big financial impact, potentially. So, so this could actually, as, as, the, as the real situation becomes more apparent, it could actually have an effect on on, on rates. Ratings. I, I think so, because it, what it will do is it will create material impacts to potentially the balance sheet and the P&L, although um, some management teams have explained to me that it could be beneficial in the P&L. That's fine, but, but then they'll get re-rated higher. Indeed. So, uh, so we'll wait to see what happens. But ultimately, for, uh, for some of our more sort of portfolio challenge friends, um, I think that it I think that it will educate a lot of their investors on just how much of their money is already accounted for in just paying rent. Mm, retail. There you go. It's, I, I must admit, I occasionally look back over old magazines and you know there, there are many retailers who don't exist anymore. It's, this is just the nature of the sector, isn't it? Yeah. Recessions and cycles and... Yeah, it's a sector with massive turnover, and I don't mean the good kind of turnover. No, indeed, um, and trends change, and someone comes... It's just one of those sectors. It's fickle, and it, it makes it incredibly hard to forecast and to predict, and it's one that's very subject to disruption. But, you know, I'd say that's true of a lot of sectors. It's true of technology, for instance. It's very, it's very true of investing, isn't it? Mm. Thank you, Harriet. Lots of uh, ideas around the, the property side of things here, which I won't ask you to go into, because uh, Jonas wrote this piece, but, but talking about some of the property companies who are basically best positioned to deal with the rise of online, last mile delivery, who are targeting slightly different segments of the retail market, particularly the bargain sector. Good good business there still. Yeah, and B&M comes out quite favourably on, on my data chart as well. That's been a bite it for me now for, for over a year. I mean, the real crossover for us bringing Jonas into the piece was ultimately if landlords are going to be confronted with a lot of retailers pulling the plug, they're going to be a lot of vacant property. And what do they do with that property? How are they going to either convince retail, retail um, clients to stay in? Is that turning it into a click and collect depot? You know, so that was really what Jonas, uh, Jonas took under his his guys on that. Mm, it's fascinating. So one of the things they've done in the past is turn it into leisure sites. But even that's struggling. I mean, Prezzo is one of the companies It is really struggling, struggling this week. But interestingly, there is also this correlation between new builds, which Jonas will tell you are holding up because there is still a, a supply and demand imbalance that needs to be corrected. A lot of retailers, for instance, have moved into the basement of things like Nine Elms. While that's still in development, a lot of food retailers have gone in there and they're doing an absolutely roaring trade. And it's because not only do they feed you know, a bunch of sort of new movers into that area, but also the workforces that are currently working on those developments are uh, are getting all their food there. So 
Indeed, and you know, generally speaking, we're not yet at that point of economic doom and gloom which would suggest that this is going to be a small trickle that turns into a tidal wave. Yeah, so uh, it could be better news than, than you might expect on the property side. But I think from the retail perspective, there aren't any sort of major news flashes that came out of this. It's ultimately the smaller you are and the more online business you have, the better. Indeed. Pick your winners carefully. Okay, thank you, Harriet. Let's, uh, let's talk to Simon. Simon, are you there? I, I'm here, bearing up with the weather, John. Yourself? Yeah, uh, I, I'm. I'm here. Incredibly, <laughs> it was it was a, a, a challenging journey to work this morning, but I'm here. I'm sure the readers appreciate it, John. I'm sure they do, and the listeners as well. Yeah, because we're working, of course, on our new alpha service, which launches on Monday, which you've uh, been very helpfully uh, contributing to. Um, but we'll we'll, uh, we'll talk about that next week when uh, there's something tangible to discuss. In the meantime, Simon, what have you been up to this week? I've noticed some repeat buying opportunities in the uh, small caps I cover. One of which is First Property Group. It's um, AIM Traded UK and Eastern European Property Fund Manager, uh, led by a chap called Ben Habib, very shrewd individual. Um, the last seven years, their net asset value per share has increased from 14 pence to 51 pence. The share price is roughly 45 pence, so it's on a discount to net asset value. In the same seven-year period, dividend per share has increased 50%. How does it make its money? It owns 10 properties in Poland and um, Romania, uh, commercial properties, that is. So things like supermarkets let out to um, Lidl and other big, big retailers. Very high yielding. Um, these 10 properties are worth £172 million pounds debt, £118 million pounds secured on them. So loan to value about 68%. They're actually in their accounts for an average initial yield of 9.8%. The debt on them is borrowed at about 2.46%. So there's a massive difference between the uh, the yield, the rental return, and the cost of actual borrowing. Um, as a result, this company makes recurring profits from these properties alone, um, which supports about 90% of its um, pre-tax profit forecast for brokers. It's also got a very fast-growing fund management business. It's got 10 mandates. In the last six months to end of September, it grew funds under management by about 22% to £382 million. One of those mandates so far has invested £51 million, so it accounts for 51 of the 382 And that's a mandate backed by eight institutional investors who invested or who will invest £182 million in total um, to buy commercial property, mainly offices and business parks, um, mainly in the southeast of England. The point is that with the mandates it's already won, and as this company actually invests the money for these investors that have actually backed um, the company already, that fund under management side is going to grow very, very quickly. It's already making £3 million worth of fee income a year, and it's in the price for free because you can actually buy the shares on a 12% or thereabouts discount to net asset value. Price per earnings ratio is about 75 or thereabouts, all the earnings are basically recurring. I've got it on a buy. What's, uh, what's been the catalyst to, uh, to have another, another look at that this week? Whilst I was on sabbatical at the end of last year, and um, they had results, and so I've just basically picked them up and had a really good look at them. I also noted that the sterling euro exchange rate has actually weakened as well. So this company's got properties over in... Um, Romania and Poland, and the Polish and Romanian exchange rate against the euro has actually held up. So 
there'll be more valuation upsides because this company reports in sterling um, from the increased equity in those properties overseas as well. So, I mean, you've got basically a recurring income stream, PE ratio of 7.5, dividend yields 3.6%, discount to net assets value 10 to 12, thereabouts. Uh, percent. Everything ticks the right box. I've just been talking to Harriet about uh, UK retail and, and uh, some of the difficulties that we're seeing there and the potential impact on, on uh, owners of, uh, of retail property. Uh, should, we, should we be cautious, circumspect, in how we look at first property in terms of its exposures to UK retail? It, well, actually, we're talking retail in Poland and Romania for those, um, those properties, and they're also commercial properties offices as well. But in terms of the business it's doing in the UK with its, with its institutional partners? It's mainly offices, John. It's mainly um, offices. It's, it's got one one of its mandates. It's got ten funds that it basically runs, but one of those mandates is the uh, a, a shipbuilding workers mandate. So basically, workers of BAE Systems can actually invest in this um, this fund. It's worth about 156 million pounds or thereabouts. And yes, that does have supermarkets retail in it, but it's. It, it's a long mandate. It's got seven years to run. Um, it's more or less fully invested. I think it's 156 out of a mandate of 170, so it's almost fully invested. Um, and it's got high-quality tenants as well. You see, I mean, um, it does sound like it's sort of part of that trend uh, for pension funds to diversify a little bit to, to you know, to, 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 to find better returns. Um, it's quite an interesting model that First Property has, has developed to, to get into that. Well, the thing is, it's got backing from very, very shrewd people um, and also um, institutions, um, academic institutions like Oxford Colleges, um, St. Catharines in Oxford and uh, Christchurch as well um, have actually backed one of the funds as well. So um, it's, it's, it's not it's not fly-by-night money that's actually invested in this. It's It's very smart, shrewd money, John. Indeed. Talking of uh, smart, and you've written about a couple of other companies in, in your column this week, but uh, talking of smart, shrewd investing, you've got a new book out. I, I do. So, Successful Stock Picking Strategies comes out two weeks today, 15th of March. YPDbooks.com is the uh, sole distributor for it. Um, there is an offer for readers if they um, if they're interested. Um, a discount of uh, £2.45 five off the cover price if they pre-order the book so what's um, what's the uh, what's the what's the theme of this one i know you, you've had what's your, your third book now isn't it trading secrets it's, it's and stock picking for profit was the second one it's the following title to that i've covered 15 in-depth chapters 26 case studies i look at various things like my top tips for successful investing red flags you should look out for how, how to understand concepts like operational gearing, what to look out for in IPOs. Um, for example, Watkin Jones, the student accommodation provider, uh, construction company, was one of the best ones over the last couple of years. And uh, I put readers into that at a pound, and it soared to about £2.50 um, earlier this year, so within 18 months of actually floating. So I basically highlight what I was looking for, what I look for, and uh, what readers should do as well. I've dedicated a whole chapter to new technology and what I'm actually looking for when I actually um, look at companies and um, the business models and um, for example I put readers in a couple of years ago into a company called Blue Prism it's a robot software company um, it's got big contracts with banks in Switzerland and the UK Barclays is one of its clients and um, the share price day 
it's gone from about a pound to, I think, a hive of about £16 at the end of last year. So that's within 18 months of floating. But, I mean, there are fundamental reasons why that happened. Um, I look at why so many of the companies I actually follow, 21 in the last four years, have been taken over. So why that's happened, what are the um, similarities between the takeovers, Um I reveal some of the secrets, or quite a few of the secrets, that I um, look forward to uncover hidden value in companies in terms of their balance sheets and price-to-book value bargains, various stock screens, including an earnings momentum stock screen. Um, it just goes on and on, John. It's um, it's a huge amount of um, um, content in the book, and um, probably in the order of about 500 hours worth of work I've put into this. I'm looking forward to it, Simon. Can't wait for my review copy. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, John. So I'm sure, I'm sure you'll get a glowing review. <laughs> 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 yeah, ypdbooks.com is the uh, distributor of it, and it's called Successful Stock Picking Strategies. Okay, can't wait. Thank you, Simon. Uh, I'll leave you to enjoy the weather. I know you've got a wonderful view out of your... Uh... I, I, I've got a wonderful view, John, but it's snowing and I can hardly see anything. It, it's due to clear over the weekend, I'm told. That's something to look forward to. It really is. It really is, I tell you. <laughs> anyway, have a, have a good weekend, Simon. We'll, yeah. uh, we'll speak next week. Thank you. OK, so that, that pretty much rounds us off. There's lots in the magazine this week. As I said, it's the ISA special week. Uh, we, we're cranking up to that time of year where you either use what you haven't used from last year's allowance or you're, you're planning next year's. It's 16-page supplement uh, that they'll talk about on their podcast tomorrow. Lots and lots of news, lots and lots of results. There's just so much to talk about. I, uh, I, I can't pick anything out, really, without, uh, without doing something else at a disservice. Uh, lots in the comments section. Philip. Ryland has, has taken a look at GKN Melrose, which I think is a very interesting situa- situation, which has become bizarrely politicised. Um, definitely worth a read there, followed up something that, uh, that Mark Robinson wrote uh, a couple of weeks back. Um, but anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you, Harriet, for your, uh, for your insights into to the troubles in the retail sector. We will be back again next week. But in the meantime, get to the, uh, get to the news agents if you can. Pick up the magazine, 50 Smart ISA Ideas. or get on the website subscribe and if you subscribe you'll also be able to get access to our new alpha service which launches on monday thank you very much for listening thank you everybody speak soon goodbye hey folks i'm mark maron from the wtf podcast and this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.